one of the things about doing this show or, or being in this business, you know, getting it right is what counts. There's not much else. And, uh, you know, we're in the business of saving money, making money, making prudent investments, and bringing best guests that we can find to you on a variety of investment subjects and personal finance subjects. Well, Joseph Schachter and I talked, God, this is going back a couple of years, about the vulnerability of the oil market. That's at a time when we were already out of the gold market, very clearly spelt out here on Money Talks in late September, early October of 2012, I think that was. Uh, but going on, being very clear about getting into the U.S. dollar, out of the Canadian dollar. I mean, crystal clear. I think we've said it every single show uh, for well over 125 shows. So I think you know where we stand. But the big call coming out of the World Outlook Conference, February of 2014, was Joseph's call to say, hey, look, he doesn't like the oil market. He sees a significant decline coming. He reiterated that in our show in the spring. And, of course, the decline started in June of 2014. 107 was, I think, the high water mark in that month, dropping all the way down to the $42 range. Well, we obviously had been predicting that and were very clear not to be in the oil stocks oil market. Came down to that 42, had a bounce uh, in the spring, just above 60. Again, we reiterated, we're coming back to test those lows. Well, we're nearly there. You saw it trade to about a $43 and change handle this past week. Joseph Schachter is my guest. What better time to have him on? I'd like to say that I actually predicted the timing. I didn't. I'm just thankful that he is here with us. Joseph Schachter, Schachter Asset Management. Joseph, you're not sitting there surprised about what's going on. No, I'm, um, you know, I think that, um, you know, we're, we're still in, in this process of deflation in the commodity board. Um, if you look at the CRB, it's at uh, lower lows now than the bottom in, two, in 2008 when it got to 200 um, after being at a peak in the second quarter of 2008, uh, or it was in early 2009, sorry, it got to 200, and the high had been uh, 473 in the second quarter of 08. Well, we were at 318 in the second quarter of 2014 when oil was at that 107, and we busted to a new low on Friday of 198. So the commodity board between the grains and iron and copper and oil and gold uh, just keep on getting devastated. And, uh, um, you know, the Fed is trying to, you know, stimulate. They're trying to get inflation. We had a decent jobs report. The question is how many of those are fictitious where the government says, uh, you know, in a private industry created an extra number of jobs and it's all a guesstimate. Uh, the bottom line is, uh, you know, I'm still in the camp that I think that there's going to be uh, lower prices to come uh, into the fourth quarter of 2015. But the question is how low is low? And that's going to be based on where the dollar is. And so the next couple of weeks, uh, I'd be watching to see if the Fed move does come in September where they raise interest rates. If interest rates in the states on the 10-year, the 2-year, the 30-year start going up, all of that's going to be supportive of a stronger U.S. dollar. And at the same time, of course, if Europe's got problems with Greece and this whole issue of them accepting all the changes and this putting into the, you know, privatization of and sale of 50 or 60 billion dollars worth of Greek assets, you know, all of that happens and it, or, or there's difficulty in getting that to happen, we're going to see the euro dollar go down. So the numbers to watch are like 108 on the downside, and we ended up, I think, 109.60-ish on the, on the euro dollar. Remember, the euro has come down quite a bit uh, over the mm-hmm. last couple of years. 
you know, the euro at one point was trading above 140 in 2014, and the low is 104, I believe, in, in March of this year, and rallied to 114. So going down below 18, we could break parity on that. And on looking at it from a U.S. dollar point of view, the U.S. dollar closed just under 98. But if it gets above 99, which, again, is very close, it could run to 103, 105. If that happens, then the price of oil is going to breach the $41 low that we saw, uh, $42 low that we saw in March, and we may see low 30s. So if that's the case, stay away. Don't, you know, hold your firepower. Keep your cash. We got a good buying opportunity potentially coming, probably one of the best ones in, in decades, sometime during Q4 2015. One of the things that I'm, I'm, you know, I've been right on top of what you're saying here, Joseph, is, is we've been big time U.S. dollar bulls with very things that you're talking about. Money coming out of Europe when it's in trouble, money coming out of Asia when there's worries. You know, it's, it's clearly gone to the U.S. dollar. This is what, by the way, gold bugs has failed to appreciate, that they can get the sort of scenarios right or the issues right, but they didn't know what the investor's response was. The investor's response was clearly get into U.S. dollars, not get into gold, as an example. But as we know, as we get to the end of a move or, you know, into the sort of peak period of a move, all the commentary seems to get to extremes. Like, uh, if you recall, when we got up to, you know, really moving fast from 110 to 140, you know, plus on the oil price, that's when you start seeing articles saying it's going to 250, going to 400. And I suspect we'll see the same things if we breach that $42 mark. I think we're going to start seeing things like $9 oil as the prediction. You know, and, and that's where I think it's going to be difficult for investors to pull the trigger yeah. on the upside. Yeah, because a lot of people say, you know, what's the average price for oil over the last 50 years? Well, it's 20 bucks. Yeah. So you're going to hear a lot of articles about that. You know, the industry, what, what, what's fascinating is the industry has done a fabulous job of cost cutting. Uh, let me just give you some numbers from the um, Suncor's uh, uh, annual report. Uh, Suncor, which, of course, you know, is very big in the oil sands, has driven their cost down from a year ago when they were $34.10 in operating costs down to $28 in the second quarter of 2015. So the, the industry has been driving costs down on the drilling cost side, land cost side, and, uh, you know, and, and the oil sands, which, of course, is, you know, for some players, it's still in the 50s, you know, for, uh, for Syncrude. Uh, but when you get down to, you know, Suncor, they have been able to drive their costs down severely, and and the cost of break-even in the States now is continuing to come down. Uh, the Baker used numbers on Friday was part of the reason the price of oil came down, was that uh, the oil, uh, the number of oil rigs in the United States went up, uh, on and it was in the Permian Basin uh, where the increase occurred. So the rig count is going up because guys can, can frack wells and bring them on, and they can make money at $40 U.S. And so that's part of, you know, part of the issue is that the industry, you know, Saudi Arabia and OPEC wanted to, to drive out high-cost production. And, you know, U.K. North Sea's got high-cost production. Venezuela's got high-cost production. Uh, Mexico's got high-cost production. Those areas are where the suffering is occurring and volumes are coming down. But in the North American scene, where the industry is is finding ways to break their cost downs by you know by uh, by the industry being supportive and lowering their cost structure, 
um, you know, we're seeing volume increases in production. If you, you know, go to the EIA report of this week, Wednesday, the United States had an increase of 52,000 barrels on the week from crude oil supply, and another 17,000 came on from other supply, which is, you know, the NGLs and renewables. And so even though we're seeing much lower prices, the industry in the States has responded and has had an increase on the week in production. Yeah, and that's the key. I mean, as we all the way down, we've been hearing as the prices drop, production would finally cut back. That would be the support for oil prices. As you say, Joseph, we haven't seen it. We got Saudis at the record level of production. We've got uh, Russia. They, you know, a lot of these countries have to have that oil revenue, uh, you know, for political stability reasons. And so, of course, they've been increasing. But your point, I think, is such a key one for us to understand here in Canada, and that is the cost of production has dropped. How much does it cost to pull out that barrel of oil in an existing well? And again, then the Canadian producers have another advantage, of course, with the fall in the Canadian dollars helped. That is correct, yeah. The Canadian dollars helped quite a bit. And there still are very good hedges out there uh, through mm. the end of 2015, um, you know, that have helped. Uh, you know, and Canada has been a big beneficiary of that, um, you know, just pulling out the numbers there. Uh, in Canada, in their in the quarter, uh, you know, over half the profitability that they had during the quarter occurred because of their their hedges. Um, I'll give you two of the numbers uh, here, um, just as I pull them out. Um, in the Let United me just explain while you're doing that. You know, a hedge means that the producer has already sold the oil at a price agreed upon. So they've already sold oil for December, for example. They've already sold oil for November. They did it a while ago, so they locked in those great prices, you know, in the past. So yeah. that's why it's so important is that they're they're not getting today's price. They're getting a price that they agreed upon with a purchaser and they may have agreed upon it a year and a half ago. Right. So when you go to Encana, they produce uh, about 1.7 BCF a day. And what's helped them is they had a BCF of hedges at $4.60 through the end of 2015. So in the second quarter, they had revenues of $2.39 in MCF. Realized financial hedging was $1.32, which gave them revenues of $3.71 in MCF. And their operating net back was a dollar and a quarter. So the reality was, if it wasn't for those financial hedges, they would have lost money in Canada. In the U.S., it's even more stark. Um, they had revenues of 233 there. Their realized financial hedges were 93 cents, but they only had an operating net back of 17 cents. So there, they effectively, without those financial hedges, would lose money. So when you get to the end of this year, these companies are going to be suffering severely because their cash flows will be coming down materially, and a lot of them are going to have to get their costs even tougher and, and break them down even lower um, if they're going to be uh, you know, survivors in 2016 and onward. Yeah, again, so they're going to enjoy these high prices that they made agreements on uh, going back over the last year or so, but that contract runs out. They start getting what natural gas sells for at the moment in the market, which is, of course, another huge decline. Or if you're an oil company that you've got a hedge on, you get what the oil price is selling at you know, later in the year. So that's going to change the dynamics and the financials for a lot of companies who up to this point haven't been hurt as much. Joseph Schachter is my guest. We're going to come back. I want to dig down into this. This is such a key component. Uh, I'll, I'll start with how underestimated it was by governments 
and by uh, most analysts across the country and financial institutions have all been surprised by how important the natural resource sector led by oil has been to the country. So they've been forced to downward revise their economic estimates for growth. We'll talk more with Joseph on that when we come back across the Chorus Radio Network. You're listening to Money Talks. Money Talks is brought to you by Solera Club. Solera Club is a uh, in the tech field, but it's a royalty-based investment, which means you as the investor get paid first before others. It also has no fees attached to it, as I say, in the tech field. Check out more at soleraclub.com. Joining me now on the line, I've got Joseph Schachter, our oil analyst for Money Talks. Uh, Joseph, I, a couple of things I want to get to, but one is I, I have been consistently blown away by how underestimated the impact of the oil decline and other resources on the Canadian economy, starting with the Bank of Canada revising downward its projections, uh, but many of the financial institutions. I I just don't know why that was. I think it was, I I would have thought that would have been pretty obvious. Well, with an election coming, uh, the politics of uh, dealing with a recession definitely don't help the party in power. So I think that um, having as much good news, i.e. our export picture because of the lower dollar, um, anything that can be positive uh, into the end of October, uh, I think is what uh, the message uh, they're going to grab onto is uh, all the positives. And the negatives, I think, are going to be, uh, you know, held in a bay. Um, you know, I think we, we are, you know, facing severe recessionary conditions, um, and, uh, you know, Alberta particularly. And, um, you know, the financial position of the Alberta government is, is, uh, is dire, you know, five, six billion in the hole. And uh, if the revenue streams from the oil patch don't come in, those numbers are going to get even worse. And, of course, natural gas prices continue to come down, you know, low two, 220s, I believe, for a Canadian uh, ACO price. And, uh, of course, uh, you know, the advantage of the lower dollar helps on the oil side. Uh, but if the oil price does go down another 10 bucks or more, um, that's going to really, um, you know, impact because, remember, royalties uh, go up as the price of oil goes up. So royalty revenues will come down as we get down to lower and lower levels for the price of the commodities. And so government um, will be impacted even more than the absolute straight decline. Well, I, I just think that, uh, as I say, I think this was a we're part of a deflationary trend here in the commodity markets. That's been, I think, many, many people fail to understand the implications of that. But it's also, you know, I know it's politics and the BS, but, uh, you know, to think that any government's going to control the oil price or the rest of the commodity prices, or in our case, in, as Canada, you need the U.S. consumer to come to the table in order to improve the export market in so many different areas. So, uh, you know, I think people don't like the fact that uh, you're not, we're not electing the Wizard of Oz who's going to stand behind a curtain and pull a lever and presto, everything's good. There is literally not a single example of that in history anywhere. You know, I mean, if governments could take care of this stuff, they would have in Europe long ago. France would have. In fact, we see the opposite. So it's going to be interesting because I, I want to come back to your, your estimate here, make sure the headline estimate, which is we break that $42 mark uh, anytime here soon. And that sort of opens up the gates for obviously a lower low. Obviously. Yeah. So, I, so again, what we're watching for are those currency moves. So again, I, I'll reiterate those numbers. In the terms of the euro, a decline below 108, and on the U.S. dollar index, a, a rise above 99 triggers another uh, decline in the price of commodity board because the buyers of, of, of U.S. dollar products won't be able to afford it because of a rising yeah. U.S. dollar. And plus, we're coming into the shoulder season. The summer driving season is over by the second week of September, you know, after the long weekend. 
demand, and then the demand of for 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 uh, oil falls by about a million barrels a day, and OPEC is not cutting back, and everybody else is running flat out. Especially as you mentioned, countries like Russia and, and others that need revenues are willing to sell every barrel they can produce, and there's such a glut of inventory right now between the physical inventory of over 100 million barrels in excess storage in the United States, and then when you take into account the physical or the the paper barrels, i.e. the CFTC, uh, you know, reports that come out every week. The report from Friday shows that the speculators are still long 274,000 contracts or 274 million barrels of oil. And historically, near near lows in the price of oil, they usually are short. And so, uh, give you the example of the natural gas. The natural gas, the commercials are long 182,000 contracts. Speculators are short 213,000. I think natural gas, where it is now, is cheap. I think oil, you know, given the inventory glut, that we're going into a shoulder season. OPEC is ratcheting up production wherever they can to get whatever revenues they can. And Saudi Arabia is not happy with what's going on, of course, with the Iran deal. And they want Iran not to have the revenue streams uh, for them to be able to fund the warfare against uh, the Sunnis. I think this game is still unfolding. And in the next quarter, we're going to see a lot more pain for the industry. A lot of stocks, uh, you know, uh, big cap stocks have gone to new 52-week lows just in the last uh, you know, week. Uh, week. You know, look at New Vista, Penn Growth, uh, you know, we've seen um, Tourmaline, uh, Paramount, a lot of the, the names that everybody owns in their portfolios have now, uh, you know, gone to 52-week lows. The stocks that seem to have hold up are things like Husky and Suncor, where you've got the, the R&M business, and the R&M business we all see at the pump out, you know, that the prices of oil are, are much higher than they should be given where the price of the commodity is. So the R&M business has been the hiding place for investors. But I would recommend to investors, hold your, hold your, uh, your investment capital available for potentially a very sharp decline in the next, between now and the end of the year. It may coincide with tax loss sellings in December, like we yeah. did have last year when we got bullish again um, after the fall from 104 down to the, you know, the, the 52 level. Uh, the index got down to, I think, it was 187. And, um, and so we said buy at that time. You know, and then when it got up to, on the rally, we said in, in March, April, get out again. Uh, you know, the rally to 60 is, is it. And now yeah. we're looking for another decline. And to me, if the U.S. dollar breaks out, and again, this is something to watch over the next couple of weeks. We've only got about 10 seconds here, so we've got to leave it at that. We'll look for that U.S. dollar here. We'll obviously get Joseph and Begum to come back on with us uh, as we get to those lows, but he's made a very clear statement here, clear warning. Joseph, thank you for your time. My pleasure. Have a good Great week. stuff, as always, with Joseph Schachter. Back with your shocking stat. My name is Mike Campbell. You're listening to Money Talks. Money Talks is brought to you by Solera Club. Solera Club is a uh, royalty-based investment, which just simply means that you get paid first. You're first in line uh, for cash flow. Secondly, uh, there are no fees attached, and it's all in that tech area. And I'd invite you to get more information by going to soleraclub.com. By the way, you can re-listen to uh, what Joseph Schachter had to say, or if you're traveling, you're on the move, not convenient time frame, well, go ahead. Turn the internet into your Money Talks archive. You just simply go to moneytalks.net and you can uh, click on not just the daily business comment. I make a comment uh, Monday through Friday and I'd invite you to do that. Uh, I do a midweek interview where I get interviewed on uh, the latest kinds of stuff that's going on. 
And, of course, you can re-listen to Money Talks itself. So you can just click right into the top of the hour, and you're going to see Joseph Schachter and listen to what he's got to say, Michael Levy, back in the first hour. And coming up, Victor Dare live from the trading desk, Ozzy Jurek on a real key concept. If you're looking at investment real estate, because it doesn't look like Canadian interest rates are going up anytime soon. Uh, we're kind of battling on the other direction, so a lot of people have turned to real estate for cash flow. Well, he's going to tell you one of the key concepts you better understand. Time now for this week's shocking stat. The Guardian newspaper reported that in July in the United States, that was the deadliest month so far for killings by U.S. police officers in the States. I want you to guess what the number is. This is just July. Well, there were 118 fatalities. And what was kind of interesting in the numbers, or puzzling, or what have you, whatever adjective, uh, I wish I had a better one than the lame one I just used, but 20 people were unarmed. There is a police killing, it seems, uh, every 6.5 hours during the day on average. The Guardian projects that U.S. law enforcement is on course to kill more than 1,150 people this year. I remember back in March, that number was 113 people killed in March. I think 101 died in April. And then you've got May and June around the 80 mark. But here's the, well, the shocking comparison. In the United Kingdom, the police have killed only 52 people during the last hundred years. That's, that's uh, less than two weeks in July in the States. In the last hundred years in the UK, they've killed only 52 people. I mean, I, this is not so simplistic as just sort of saying, oh, look at this. There are so many variables that have gone into this issue, but it is just mind-blowing what's coming out the other side of those variables. 118 fatalities in July. On average, U.S. police kill at the rate of 70 times higher than any other of the first world countries. In the first half of the year, by the way, 64 police officers died in the line of duty. As I say, this is very complex, and it's not something to jump on a simplistic hobby horse over. But I'll tell you, I was shocked when I read those numbers, especially compared to every other Western jurisdiction in the world, including Canada. I'll take a break. I'll come back. I got Aussie Jurek. And by the way, as I say, you can go to the moneytalks.net site, and we've got a great article there called The Top Six Smiths Driving Oil Prices Down. Also, we've got Bob Moriarty, who thinks we're getting a tradable low in commodities. And uh, there's so much more on that. So that's going to moneytalks.net. Coming up, Aussie Jurek. You better learn this or know about this if you're ever thinking about investment size of the real estate market. Also, Victor Adair, Goofy Award coming your way. Got a Goofy Award. It's going to be easy for Goofies in the election season here, uh, both in the States and Canada. Look, Canadians complaining about a three-month kind of election campaign season. My God, in the States, they've already had their president first presidential uh, debates. I mean, they start running that thing about two years early. As soon as the uh, midterms end, you start running for president. What, what was it? Hillary Clinton declared about three months ago, and it's nonstop for them. I'll talk about that, though, with a goofy award. Victor Dare on next, but right now, very pleased to get Ozzy Jurek back on with me. Ozzy, I, 
you know, I was just looking at the Bank of Canada statements the last couple of months. You know, it's clear that they think we're not going to have any upward pressure on interest rates. And again, the challenge for investors nonstop has been finding yield. Uh, you've been very clear with us since 2011. There were opportunities in the States to get great buys, great yield, and play on the currency change, but also in Canada. So I wanted to talk a little bit about that. You know, we're looking for yield, and obviously profitability too. Uh, we always talk about cash flow. And, you know, let's talk about how to assess you know, what cash flow there comes, you know, if I buy a given property? Yeah, this is really a very important question. It's also certainly on a commercial property, on an apartment building, it's one of sort of the more difficult and perplexing problems for realtors investors to come up with what is the true net income. And, and that's why they sort of have some, developed something they call a cap rate, a capitalization rate. Well, you know, that is a term we hear all the time. We hear about the cap rate. Uh, is it possible kind of in, in an easy way to describe exactly what that is? Yeah, I mean, it's it's really using uh, sort of, it, you have to sort of find the net income, then divide the net income into into your uh, your purchase price, and that determines the cap rate. But it's not all there, because determining the value of an income property is not that easy. See, a house, there's a thousand houses sold, you can compare them easily. But the apartment building you want to compare, maybe the last sale that is similar was maybe a year ago or two years ago. So it's much harder to find comparables. And the second thing, the statements that the owner provides you for you to, to de- develop your net uh, income from may be his biggest wish and not reality. <laughs> <laughs> okay, so let's come back to the cap rate because that's a great thing that people can throw around today if you're out at a barbecue or whatever and you want to impress everyone. Just sort of drop the phrase cap rate. Just say, you know, I'm looking for some investment properties. Cap rate doesn't really appeal to me right now. But all you're really talking about is the yield. Just like if you put a million bucks in a bank account and you got paid two, uh, 2%, well, you know that works out to $20,000. That's what you're really looking at here is how much can I expect rents minus all the costs going in and then compare it to how much they want you to pay for that apartment as, as an example on an apartment. Well, 100% correct. The only difference is, let's say, it, it's easy on a stock. It's, you know, this is the price and this was the return. But in a cap rate calculation, you've got to take some things out of the calculation to arrive at the true cap rate. For instance, debt service. You can't count the mortgages that you pay. You can't look at depreciation allowances or purely bookkeeping items. And most importantly, a cap rate doesn't include any capital expenditures which provide you the long-term benefits such as replacing appliances or painting and a hundred things, even, you know, replacing the roof. Uh, and so what you really have is, is the rate without these three items in it might be not really the true actual cash you're going to get out of it. So it's important to calculate it. Yeah, but I mean, I'm thinking if I buy a place that I'm going to rent out, and again, it could be an apartment building, I mean, you can do it for any kind of thing that you're going to make it into a business, a mini business with, but, you know, those capital expenditures are important. I mean, it's sort of like you say, okay, well, I put up my million bucks, I, I, I'm estimating I might get 50000 out of this, but wait a second, got to buy another 100000 worth of appliances this year. I mean, to me, that would be very important, that kind of capital expenditure. You hit the nail on the head, Mike, because in Vancouver we sell 75-year-old apartment buildings with a 4% cap rate, and it's never 4% because I assure yeah. you a 75-year-old apartment building may have some capital expenditures that it's going to occur in the next uh, two or three years, so maybe that rate is even lower. Well, okay, so let's, let's just, you know, time short here, so let's fire out sort of a, a little to-do list here. 
So make sure you have a real statement, not the dream of the owner. Make sure everything <laughs> is accounted for, vacancy rates and so on. Make sure you step out depreciation, expenditure, and mortgage payments. Compare the cap rate to the rate around you. And don't rely too much on cap rates because, really, how old is the building? I mean, a new building and an old building could both have the same cap rate. What is the tenant mix? Is it a bank or a laundromat? You know, so yeah. it's uh, very, very important, the quality of tenants and all of those kind of things. Um, in my mind, more important than the actual cap rate. It's a good guide. But uh, I like, for instance, if 7% is the cap rate for Toronto and 4% in Vancouver, it gives me an idea of the relative market strength of the market, but not much of the individual property I'm looking at. There's a lot more work involved. Yeah, but the thing I want to impress upon people, it's very common sense here. How much are you going to pay for this asset, and how much do you anticipate you're going to get out of it, minus the costs? You know, right. And as, as Ozzy says, so when you hear, hear that term cap rate, then it's just giving you a guideline. There's more work to be done. And you want to better make sure, by the way, that cap rate, I love this, Ozzy, is not made out of somebody's dream list, but it's actual reality <laughs> in that. No different, again, if you were buying a business. You, don't, you, know, you want to pay for the business, not what the guy thinks it could make. You know what I mean? Yeah. So, so good stuff. Be, one of my partners always says, the, the, the income statement by the owner is always a lie. Now, maybe that's exaggerated, but that's his starting point. <laughs> yeah, to do some research. Okay, very quickly, hot property. We got 320 acres and two titles uh, in Alexis Creek for $89,000. We have 40 acres, uh, prime hunting and fishing real estate uh, in 150-mile house, 98000 and 445 acres at the Ross Meadow Ranch uh, for 299000 Great smoking hot properties in the out-of-town this week. Where is Alexis Creek? It's also, it's also quite a ways from Williams Lake, you know, so you have still about an hour away from Williams Lake, but a beautiful area. 320 acres, 89 grand. Hey, not bad. I'll take it. You know me, Ozzy. You just tease me every weekend. Ozzy, go out and have a terrific weekend. Thanks for taking the time. Thanks for having me. And you can get those, by the way. We fire through them. You can re-listen on moneytalks.net or go to Ozzy's site, jurek.com. Click on the hot property button. And you can become a acreage owner, multi-acreage owner in a variety of areas there for about the price of a kitchen in downtown Vancouver or Toronto. Take a break. Come back. Victor Dare live from the trading desk and a Goofy Award. Stay with us. Coming up, i got a Goofy Award for you. But first, let's go live to the trading desk. Victor Dare joins us there. Victor, a week ago you told us that uh, it had been a long time you'd been this quiet in the markets. And I'm just wondering why that is. Um, well, Mike, I think I've had a good run this year with my short-term trading accounts being short of commodities, uh, short of commodity currencies, and uh, from time to time short of the American stock market. Uh, my last, and I've been winding those positions down here over the last uh, month or so, and yesterday the, the last of my positions, which were short call uh, trades on the Australian dollar, uh, expired. So right now I am actually... In my short-term trading accounts, like 100% in cash. I don't know, can't even remember when the last time that was. It seems like it's a couple of years. And now uh, the opportunity is to go, okay, well, uh, let's look around the board and, and see what there is to do, if, if anything. Okay, so just again for everybody to understand, when you say you're going short, you're playing it to go down. So you've been playing the Canadian dollar to go down. You made that very clear. You've played the Aussie to go down. Uh, you're playing oil to go down. You've played gold to go down. The major commodity indexes all go down. And, and of course, you've been right uh, on time with the having a chunk of your investment side of things in the U.S. dollar side, having making sure you were covered there. But the bottom line is, does this suggest that you think that moves over? 
Uh, no, short, short and sweet. Uh, you know, I, I very much enjoyed listening to Joseph Schachter. Joseph and I swap emails uh, regularly. I read his research all the time. Uh, I loved how Joseph tied the commodity, particularly crude, as he was talking about, to the U.S. dollar. Let me say this. In the last 14 years, the U.S. dollar and commodities and commodity currencies have just moved opposite of each other. When you had the U.S. dollar weak, commodities were strong. When the U.S. dollar was strong, like it's been since 2011, by the way, 2011, the Canadian dollar was 106. Now we're at 76. When the U.S. dollar is strong, commodities have been down. And Joseph's tying particularly a possible break to new lows in crude to strengthen the U.S. dollar. My thought here has been, you know, uh, if I can quote Dennis Garvin, when the market is going down, you have no idea how far down down is. I think that's a real good thing to keep in mind. In a bear market, you are short, you are really short, or you sit on the sidelines. You know, trying to pick bottoms to markets that are falling is not a good idea. <laughs> That's my point of view, anyway. Yeah, no, but it's. Uh, I think we're in a major trend of deflation. Uh, you know, I featured Gary Schilling, thanks uh, to your work with him, going back a few weeks now, and he's, he's always called it the age of deleveraging, you know, going back. Right. So it's a very interesting kind of environment. Just very quickly, Vic, can you give me what trigger you're looking for? You're saying you're off the market right now. You're looking to get back in. What, what kind of stuff do you look at then? Um, I'd say my, my two main themes right now would be looking for opportunities to benefit from a rising U.S. dollar, to benefit from a falling stock market. Now, with the U.S. dollar, we most typically, because we're Canadians, we think about the cross rate between Canada and the United States, or maybe we look at the euro and the yen against the U.S. dollar. I'm thinking some of the biggest moves in currencies have been in, in the minor currencies. Let's say, for instance, the Mexican peso has fallen to a record low. I'm looking at the Korean won in particular, thinking it's vulnerable because the Japanese who've devalued their currency are eating their lunch in terms of export share. You know, they, they may want to put their, their uh, currency lower. The Brazilian real has really had a tumble. So some of the, the better profit opportunities may be in what we would call off-the-run currencies or, or, you know, the second-tier currencies. I think the Canadian dollar is at risk, is clearly at risk of falling below 70 cents. But right now, the short interest in the Canadian dollar is at a record high. So I'm a little nervous about being short here. I would really look for a, a bounce in commodities or commodity currencies to get short of them. And just generally, I think on the stock market side, I think wealthy Americans have profited from the asset inflation, particularly in stocks. I think they're looking around the world. They're seeing the winds of change on the political side. I think wealthy Americans are starting to take their money off the table. I think that's why the American stock market has looked so sluggish this year. I think it's vulnerable to a break. Yeah, well, one of the things I've been sharing with people on the Money Talks Paid blog is to absolutely make sure with your financial advisor, if you're not taking more risks than you're aware of, yeah, I don't think it's, in this kind of environment, I'm with you, Vic. I think cash is an important side of that, of an investment position at times of uncertainty. Thanks, Vic. I appreciate the time. You're welcome, Mike. Have a great weekend. My thanks to Victor Adair. My thanks also uh, to Ozzy Jurek, uh, Joseph Schachter, Michael Levy. And just a reminder that Money Talks is brought to you by Solera Club. Solera Club is a royalty-based investment, meaning you get paid first, there's no fees attached to it. It's in the tech field. For more, go to soleraclub.com.
Time now for this week's Goofy Award. You know, we're in the political campaign, as I said, it's going to be a gold mine. But I think one of the real lowlights of any campaign for the media is the coverage of the leaders' debates. Talk about a celebration of form over substance. And this is at a time when substance is needed more than ever. We won't hear from people with an expertise as to the validity of our, Peter, uh, our leader's solution to our most pressing issues. No, instead we're going to hear who won. Who is the best debater as if being an effective prime minister or leader of a country is a result of debating skills? I mean, media pundits are waiting for some, aren't waiting rather, they're not looking for an insight or a novel approach to a pressing issue. Instead, they drool in anticipation of that gotcha moment. I mean, just read and listen to the coverage. I mean, they're looking for some sort of, in quotes, knockout blow or a good one-liner, but it's not policy substance. I mean, yeah, gee, let's solve unemployment in 10 minutes. Prime Minister, you start us off. Two minutes. So with that in mind, uh, the Republicans held their first big presidential debate uh, this week also. So I thought it was a little easier. People have too much invested in Canadian politics, so I'll go with this. But look at the reviews that came forth. Very quickly, Huffington Post, they say, wow, seriously, Donald Trump won the GOP debate. National Review, Trump lost. Almost everyone else did well. Uh, let's keep going. This is uh, from Bob Shrum, Democratic presidential strategist. Trump only uh, not only survived, but he thrived. Uh, Rick Wilson, he's a Republican media strategist. Rank-and-file GOP voters, I was in a room full of them, were horrified by the third-party blackmail from Trump. Back to the media. The New Yorker, nobody wins. Trump stays in. Zero hedge. GOP debates post-mortem. Fiore wins undercard. Trump takes the title. And the Wall Street Journal, Trump had a bad night. My goodness. I'll tell you this, though. If the outcome of the debate is how you are actually making your decision, Lord help us, we will get the government we deserve. Thanks for listening. There you have it. Just a reminder, by the way, as I say, we get the government we deserve. I forgot to remind you that you can go to moneytalks.net. MoneyTalks.net has uh, all these great articles this weekend, one on oil, another on the cashless society, but you can also review things like Joseph Schachter or Victor Dare. I want to just make sure you take it full advantage of that. Uh, you can do that on MoneyTalks.net, plus you can get access to the business comment there. And so uh, all of that's available to you. In the meantime, I hope you go out, have a terrific weekend, and I do appreciate you listening, and I hope you tune in next week.